Everyone, I'm Liam, the other pastor here, and we're at our week 10 in our Revelation series. How about that? Now, I've, uh, I've been a Christian for a bit over 12 years now, and it's, it's on the whole been fantastic. Uh, it's the best decision I've ever made. Uh, it, it's wonderful. But if I was to sum up the last 12 years, I'd, I'd say most of it in my Christian life has been struggle. Uh, it's been hard. It's been work. Uh, it's been temptation, uh, it's been trial, it, it's been sometimes doubts, uh, the, the Christian life, lots of ups and downs, but there's been lots of struggle. Uh, perhaps you've experienced that too. You may have been a Christian for a lot longer than that, maybe much shorter than that, uh, but there is lots of struggle when it comes to Christianity. Uh, it seems I can't go 10 minutes without being tempted by something, whether it's the advertising that comes through my letterbox uh, for the sheep sales or the new car or whatever it might be, uh, or, or some, some other love that I have, uh, something that allures me, that captures my heart. Uh, it might be that I just want to rest uh, rather, than, uh, rather than working for Jesus. It, it, it's often that I can't get into the systems and the patterns that I want to be in. Uh, struggling with getting to daily Bible reading, struggling with making prayer reactive, uh, with setting aside each t- some time each day to read the Bible with my kids. Why is it such a battle? Why is it so hard? Uh, And if I think my Christian life is hard, we've only got a glimpse across the globe to see that for many Christians across the globe today uh, and at every period in Christian history um, has been a real struggle. Uh, Slaughter and jail and death. Uh, Not just the regular struggles of life, but real persecutions and hardships. Uh, It makes you wonder why is it so hard to be a Christian? Kanye might be wondering this now. He's become a Christian. Uh, if you've uh, listened to that album, one of the songs on that album is talking about everyone hates me, even the Christians. Because uh, it, it sort of that's how he's feeling at the moment. He's saying, oh, I want to follow Jesus now. And, and the Christian world is saying, oh, yeah, uh, it's just a publicity stunt. Uh, it can be really tough. Why is the Christian life so hard? Uh, well, today we're going to see uh, that there is a spiritual reality behind this world Uh, that we will glimpse, uh, that explains why it is that the Christian life is tough, uh, why there is persecution across the globe, why it's hard to follow Jesus, hard to get into patterns, um, good, good, godly patterns. As we step through these couple of chapters of Revelation, uh, we're going to see the big picture from chapter 12 that Rob just read for us. Uh, We're going to dig into Satan's tools, uh, the things that Satan uses to make life hard for Christians. We said that in chapter 13. And we'll finish up saying how, how to resist, how to resist Satan, how to, how to overcome in the language of Revelation. Um, so first of all, the big picture, chapter 12, Rob just read it for us. Uh, that chapter 12, might, it might have sounded a little bit complex, there was a lot of detail in there. Uh, but, but once you step back and, and look at it, you see that it's actually um, the same story told twice from different angles. Uh, I, I just want to show you really quickly... Uh, where we we see that uh, come up. Um, So in the first half, verse 1 to 6, after a series of events, uh, the woman fled into the... We'll work out who she is in a minute. Don't worry. She fled into the wilderness to a place prepared for her by God where she could be taken care of for 1,260 days. Might remember from a couple of years ago, 1,260 days is exactly... 42 months is exactly three and a half years. So it's it's this symbolic. It's these signs. uh, Lots of patterns come up. The second half of chapter 12, in the, in the cycle at the end, the same event happens. The woman uh, escapes to this place prepared for her in the wilderness, where she'd be taken off for how long? A time, times and half a time. Three and a half. Um, so it's the same as the 1260 days. So just to show that, that this chapter, it's the same story or the same uh, sequence of events uh, told twice from different angles. So we'll have a quick flick Uh, through this flow of events. We'll have a look at the characters and see what happens. Uh, But remember as we go through these chapters, there are lots of shiny things in Revelation. Lots of things that capture our attention and make us want to zoom in and say, oh, what's this little detail? Uh, And when we do that, we we miss out on the big picture. Uh, And we get so uh, tied up in trying to figure out all the details that we tie ourselves in knots and can't step out and think, well, what's the big picture here? So we'll be zooming out. Uh, don't worry, there is pre- question time at the end, as, uh, as Rob mentioned. Um, so the flow is, is pretty simple. There's this woman who's pregnant and giving birth. There's a dragon who sets himself up against the woman. It's this 
this image of the woman and the dragon and their, the antitheses, they're, they're against each other. He wants to devour her offspring. It's a really gruesome, grisly image, isn't it? Uh, in the birthing chamber, a dragon waiting uh, to, to devour this infant. Uh, but the dragon is defeated and hurled to the earth and the offspring is victorious. Uh, the dragon, furious in his defeat, pursues the woman. She's protected by God, so the dragon then turns on her offspring. Uh, now, we'll go through that now in a little bit more detail. But first of all, the woman. Uh, who, who is she? Who is this woman? Um, well, I, I want to say really clearly it's not Mary. Uh, at, at, a, at a sort of vague surface level glimpse, you might think, well, the offspring looks like Jesus, so the woman must be Mary. Uh, not Mary, but she's a symbolic representation of God's people. Uh, one of the people in home group this week mentioned as they were reading this passage, a great sign appeared in heaven. They went, whoa, it even says it here. It's a sign uh, that could be just as easily translated symbol. Uh, so we've got symbolism here, signs here. It's even in the text. Uh, and this sign or this symbol of the woman is, is the representation of God's people. Uh, Israel is consistently represented as a woman in the Old Testament, the bride of Yahweh. Uh, and check out um, how she's described. She's described here as uh, with the, uh, clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet and a crown of 12 stars on her, on her head. Uh, now, that combination of moon, sun and stars only comes up a few times together uh, throughout the Old Testament. Uh, in Genesis 37, uh, you might remember the story of Joseph, uh, the 11th son uh, and, and of, of, um, of Jacob, who was re- Israel, renamed Israel. So he's one of the 12 uh, uh, ancestors of the nation of Israel. And Joseph had a dream. He had a couple of dreams. And this particular dream, he dreamed, uh, he dreamed about seeing, seeing the sun, the moon, and 11 stars bowing down to him. That same combination of words. Uh, and it's used to show this is the whole of Israel. Uh, the father, Jacob, the mum, and all the, all the twelve, the sun, moon, and stars. So, so we see here that this is language lifted straight out of the Old Testament. Um, but there's more than that going on here. It's not just symbolising Israel or God's people. So here this woman is set up against uh, the dragon. They're, they're, they're held up as, as enemies. Um, now the dragon is also called, a little bit later, he's called that ancient serpent, called the devil or Satan. So we know who the dragon is. He's also called a serpent. And we scratch our heads and we go, well, when have we seen a woman and a serpent at each other's throats? Uh, When have we seen a woman and her offspring connected with a serpent? And you might have thought Genesis 3, uh, that's uh, when the the curses on humanity came. Uh, And this is part of the curse to the snake, uh, which we realised was actually the devil tempting Eve tempting Eve away, and and God's curse on the serpent was that I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring uh, and hers, Uh, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. So we have this enmity, this eneminess between the offspring of the woman and a serpent. Uh, And so when we get that pop up in Revelation, we should be going straight back to Genesis and going, whoa, uh, this is the oldest story in the book, literally. Uh, This is that ancient story um, of this sort of cosmic battle between the offspring of the woman uh, and the devil and the serpent. Um, So this woman, literally, she's a sign, a symbol of God's people. But more than that, she's a symbol of Eve, of Mother Eve, the mother of humanity. But later on in this chapter, she also stands for the church. We see that in verse 17. The dragon was enraged at the woman. He went off to wage war uh, against the rest of her Offspring. So she doesn't just have one offspring, uh, many offspring. Who are these offspring? Those who keep God's commandments and hold fast to their testimony about Jesus. Explicitly, Christians, they are the offspring of the woman. So it it seems uh, that the the woman is now symbolising the church. So we have this woman, first Mother Eve, then God's people in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant, and God's people in the New, New Covenant. And that's how this woman is portrayed as this symbolic cosmic woman with the moon and the stars uh, and the sun. Uh, next, we have the dragon. Um, the dragon who is, who is against, uh, against the woman. Uh, and this is a pretty easy one. Uh, we see, see pretty clearly that 
Uh, the dragon is Satan, tells us explicitly, that ancient serpent, uh, Satan, who was, who was hurled down. And that fits with Gen- Genesis 3 again, this cosmic conflict. Uh, but next along in the story comes the offspring. Uh, and the offspring are, are pretty, pretty obvious who the offspring is. Uh, that's a quote straight out of Psalm 2, the child who will rule the nations with an iron scepter. We're looking forward to God's eternal king, the one who will be king of the whole world, of all the nations. Uh, explicitly a little bit later on, we see that um, the, uh, the offspring is the Messiah. Uh, there in verse 10. Uh, he's, the, he's the offspring of the woman who is victorious. Uh, so the offspring is Jesus. Um, now, now, when we see uh, Satan and the offspring, uh, well, Satan having this bit of a battle with the offspring, uh, it, it's not really much of a contest, is it? Uh, back in verse, verse 5, uh, we don't even get the, the battle recorded. You see the, uh, the, the, the dragon is poised there to devour this offspring, and we don't even get the record of his defeat. Uh, it goes straight from Jesus' birth. She gave birth to a son, birth of Jesus. Uh, a little quote about Jesus, and immediately to the ascension, the child being snatched up in heaven. So Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and ascension are all there uh, in the lines in between these words. Uh, It's as if Satan didn't even have a chance. Not a chance to to fight or or battle against this offspring at all. Uh, In in the next flow of the story, it's equally as quick, this war that breaks out, Verse 8, that he's not strong enough, that's the devil. They lost their place in heaven, the dragon's hurled down, he's hurled down to earth. Uh, he's described it as being no battle. If you go back and read Psalm 2, uh, it's almost a comical scene of God's enemies coming to war against God. Uh, and it's pictured a little bit like when a toddler has a tantrum and tries to kick you, uh, a little two-year-old, and you say, well, it, it, it's almost comical, except they're going to be feral if they grow up and keep doing that when they're 18. Uh, but it's almost comical because they're having this little tantrum and you can't get your way. You can't do anything. And, and that's how it's pictured, uh, both here for the devil and in Psalm 2 for the nations. Uh, it's no contest, uh, no context test at all. Now, when did this battle happen? When did it get won? Uh, well, we see that in verse 10 and 11, uh, that the battle was won, not in some ancient conflict where Satan and his angels were hurled out of heaven, Uh, But the battle was won uh, in the life and death of Jesus. Uh, I'll read this out, verse 10. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and power in the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah for the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. They triumphed over him by the blood of the Lamb. See, it's with the coming of Christ that the battle is fought and won. Jesus' birth, life, death, resurrection, ascension... That is the scene for this battle. Although it's quick, the Satan's not strong enough, he can't really do anything. It's quite quick, but that is the scene for this battle. Satan's got no chance. But even though Satan is defeated, he's hurled down, he's he's cast out of heaven, his defeat is sealed, but he's still angry. He's enraged by his, his defeat. And verse 12, he takes it out on the world. Um, So this is a bit of a quote saying, Rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell in them, because the devil's been cast down. But woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. He's filled with fury because he knows that his time is short. When the dragon saw that he'd been hurled to earth, he pursued the woman who'd given birth to the male child. Now, throughout history, uh, when evil leaders have been defeated, some of their most bloody and violent actions have been in their retreat. Uh, have been after when they'd realised, you know what, the, 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 we've already lost, uh, but, but I've still got a chance to take out my, my vengeance. Uh, if you look through the, the history of the World Wars, uh, Hitler after D-Day, the Allied forces were there. Uh, by that time, defeat was inevitable for Hitler and the Nazis, uh, but it was only after that that the Battle of the Bulge came, uh, and that was one of the most gruesome, bloody Battles where, where Hitler threw everything. And, and it was a little bit like taking out his vengeance. Uh, and when we see it again and again and again, after the defeat's been sealed, uh, that, that's sometimes when, when these evil leaders will, will take out their vengeance on anyone that's around, when they'll massacre whole, whole towns in their retreat. And that seems to be what's happening here. Uh, Satan's been defeated. He's been cast out of heaven. There, there, he, he's lost. Jesus has won, that's what happened to the cross. Uh, 
but, but he's furious and he's taking out his frustration uh, in the earth on the church, uh, now described as this woman. Um, but we see this hope is that she's being protected. Uh, she's given eagle's wings to escape to the wilderness or the desert. Now, when you hear that, we might go, well, that's not much of an escape. I'd rather escape to you know, Bali or somewhere. Uh, but but this, is, this, this quote or this language of eagle's wings to the wilderness it is pulled directly out of Exodus 19. It's how God describes saving Israel uh, from Egypt to the wilderness. It's, it, he takes them on eagle's wings out into the wilderness to this time of safety. Yes, trial uh, wasn't fun, but it was safety from the Egyptians. Uh, and so that's where that language comes from. Uh, just quickly, as we, we see uh, down through here, this, this verse that talks about the, from this, his mouth, the serpent spewed out water like a river. We could get zooming in on, well, what does the water mean? What does the river mean? Now, through Revelation, regularly strange things come out of people's mouths. Can anyone remember the first thing that's strange that comes out of someone's mouth in Revelation? A sword out of Jesus' mouth. Now, we're not expecting a physical sword out of Jesus' mouth. Uh, it's representative of the words you speak, the words of judgment and of justice and of truth. Um, so, so this object that's coming out of a mouth is symbolic uh, for the type of words that are coming out. Uh, we saw it with the witnesses that back in chapter 10. Fire came out of their mouth, so judgment. Uh, here we have water coming out of the serpent's, uh, the serpent's mouth. Um, so it's some sort of deceptive or uh, aggressive words uh, that, are, that are poured out on the church. They're trying to destroy her, but God protects her. If we zoom out, that's the big picture. It doesn't really matter exactly what it is, but the serpent tries to destroy this woman, destroy God's people, the church, but she's protected. And God takes away and, and looks after her. So Satan, unable to reach the church, unable to destroy the church, he turns, well, oh, well, before we get to that, sorry, just a reminder that this shouldn't be surprising when we get to Revelation. These are the promises that Jesus made. Uh, you know, to Peter, he said, oh, he, he renamed Peter, on this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Uh, as you look through the history of our world and you see the, the different things that have come on the church, the different people who have tried to wipe out of the church uh, over time, we shouldn't be surprised that it doesn't work. We shouldn't be surprised that the church keeps growing. Um, the bulk of the church might shift from continent to continent over time, uh, but the church itself is protected and keeps, keeps growing, and, and that's what we should expect. But the, but the devil, unable to destroy the church, t- turns to the church's uh, offspring, uh, the individual Christians, to hound them, to, to, to seek to wage war against them, uh, against us. And, and this is where it gets very personal, doesn't it? We ask, well, how is that going to happen? How does, how does the devil wage war against the offspring of the church? Well, that's what comes next uh, in chapter 13. We see chapter 13 using the imagery of the beasts uh, from the Old Testament in Gen- Daniel 7 uh, and shows that they are, in fact, Satan's tools. Uh, we preached on Daniel a couple of years ago. Th- those sermons are on our website if you want to uh, look those up. It's a good read, Daniel 7. We, we see explicitly uh, the beasts there. Uh, and, and we see the, all the elements of the four beasts in Daniel 7 merged into these horrible beasts. They're sort of like when our kids get the Play-Doh and they start with nice individual colours and in two minutes it's brown. Um, and that's sort of what's happened from Daniel 7 to Revelation 13. Uh, the four beasts, they're just mushed together uh, to be this big, cosmic, scary beast. Uh, and Revelation 13 is using this imagery to, to show us something about them. We're told back in Daniel that the beast explicitly, the beasts stand for uh, evil kingdoms and nations and governments uh, who are against God and his people. Um, and together, the dragon and these beasts, they become a sort of uh, unholy trinity, a bit of a poor imitation of God himself. Uh, and we'll see that as we go through. So we'll have a bit of a skim over this chapter. Uh, it begins with a dragon uh, who calls out these two beasts um, so dragon's on the shore of the sea. He calls out these two beasts and he actually empowers the beasts. They're his agents. He gives, he, he gives them authority and power. And you can see this poor imitation of what the, the father does for the son, uh, what, what God the father does for Egypt. Um, now these two beasts, they're similar but different. Uh, the first beast comes out of the sea. 
Uh, the sea in ancient Israel wasn't like the sea is today. We think holidays and sunshine and fun. The sea is the source of chaos and suffering and destruction in the ancient world. Uh, this beast has horns and seven heads, uh, representing uh, great power and wisdom. Again, it seems to be a, a poor imitation of Jesus. Uh, we, we see this beast has this blasphemous name on, on its head. It seems to be claiming things that belong to God alone. Uh, we see that this beast is, is wounded yet healed. Uh, it seems to have suffered a fatal wound, but it's been healed. Now, it's, it's an oxymoron. It doesn't really work, does it? You, you can't be healed from a fatal wound. Um, but, that, that, that's, uh, but you think, well, who does that remind you of in the book of Revelation? The lamb who is standing as those slain. Standing as those slain. A bit of an oxymoron. So again, it's this, this, this evil parody of the Trinity. Um, this, this beast is also the focus of worship in the same way as Jesus, the lamb, is the focus of worship. Uh, the beast is given power and authority for uh, 42 months. Again, that three and a half number, three and a half years, again, that, that, that time, time and a half a time or 1260 days. Power to bring physical suffering and threats on God's people. Uh, we see that in verses down 7 to 10. Uh, verse 9 and 10, I'll read that out. Whoever has ears, let them hear. If anyone's to go into captivity, into captivity they'll go. If anyone's to be killed with the sword, with the sword they'll be killed. That's how the effect of this beast is summed up. Uh, you'll, be, you'll be chained up, you'll be locked up and you'll be killed. That, that, that's what this beast does. It, it's this sign for these um, evil governments and powers who by force and threat and violence oppose God and his people. Uh, we see the first beast symbolically operating in places like this. Uh, these are the top 10, 11 top countries for persecuting Christians. Uh, it's not a, not, not a top tips if you want to go persecute Christians, go here. Uh, this, this is saying this is where Christians are most persecuted at the moment. North Korea, Afghanistan, Somalia, Libya. If you're a Christian in some of these uh, nations, you can expect to be locked up or killed for your faith, uh, to have violent, uh, violent oppression. Uh, our friends in India, who we work with quite regularly, as I hear from Daniel and Phoebe, they're visiting churches where the pastors have been threatened uh, and chased down, where the, the buildings have been burned down. Uh, very different to the sort of opposition we face here. Now, now we don't get very much of this first beast here in Australia. Maybe the very soft edges, but really we don't get uh, much of this beast. But the second beast seems to be alive and well in our nation. Uh, the second beast comes out of the earth or out of the land, N not from the source of chaos, but from the stability of the land. And this beast seems to be crudely mimicking the Holy Spirit uh, who glorifies Jesus. Uh, he's, he's the... Uh, public relations officer for the first beast. He wants to, he wants to make the inhabitants of the earth worship uh, the first beast. Um, this beast acts as a, as a tool, uh, is used as a tool by Satan in a different way to the first beast. Where the first beast was overt and brutal, uh, threatening and scary, this beast achieves Satan's goals through a sort of sneaky deception signs and proofs uh, that indicate that the dragon and the first beast are worth trusting. But it also rages against God's people, seeking to destroy them, uh, not through oppression and violence this time, but through alluring and wooing the world to follow not Jesus, but the beast and the dragon. And this is where uh, the famous mark of the beast uh, comes in, uh, the 666. Uh, now, I just really quickly wanted to show you a few things of what it's not. Here's some ideas. Google. Oh, look at that. 666. How about this one? Anyone known a Ford? Oh, apparently. People have seen 666. Walt Disney's signature has three sixes in it. Uh, bank card. Anyone remember bank card? There was a bit of a controversy. Can't get bank card. That's the mark of the beast. Uh, a couple of years ago, there was a big whoop-de-doo about in September because we worked out when it was going to end. Or the Monster Energy Drinks. Uh, apparently, uh, 666, this is the mark of the beast. Here's one I found today, uh, thanks to an email sent to me. Uh, thank you. That, but, but this idea that, oh, you know, we're going to be vaccinated with this microchip uh, in, you know, in our wrist. Oh, it might be the mark of the beast. 
Um, now, it's, it's pretty clearly not any of those things, partially because some of those things have gone. Does bank card exist anymore? I, I don't think bank card's set up to be the mark of the beast. Mostly we know it's not that because Revelation tells us what it is. Uh, when we see what, uh, what this is referring to, it's very clearly uh, referring back uh, to Deuteronomy 4, uh, 6, 4 to 8. Um, so back in Deuteronomy, it's this prayer of allegiance to God, a prayer that was told to be symbolically for the Jews. Uh, some of them took it literally, symbolically written on their foreheads and their wrists. Uh, that's why back in the, well, the, the Orthodox Jews, sometimes you'll see them with a little box literally strapped to their forehead. Uh, this prayer of allegiance strapped on their forehead because they say, oh, that means literally. But it's just symbolic of saying everything I think and everything I do, I, I have my allegiance to my God. Uh, and this is very clearly set up as an antithesis. The mark of the beast, not the mark of God, the prayer of allegiance to the beast with what I do and how I think. Um, the other thing that we see pre- um, pretty clearly is... Uh, is that we have an, a hint uh, that the name of the beast and the number of the beast are linked. Um, so we see the name of the beast, the number of its name. Uh, now, English doesn't work like this, but in Hebrew, the Hebrew alphabet can be uh, numbers and letters. Uh, and if you take the Hebrew alphabet and you spell Nero Caesar or beast, they both come to 666. Now, we shouldn't be surprised when we read that because John, who wrote this, he could speak Hebrew, he could speak Greek. Um, so, so when he writes this down, he, he knows what it means. Uh, Nero Caesar, at this time in history, uh, he was a couple of Caesars before that, but he was probably the most brutal of the Roman Caesars towards uh, Christians. Uh, famous for dipping Christians in pitch uh, and then crucifying them, then lighting them uh, to light up his garden parties. Um, So if you want to think at this time in history, the first century, around 90 AD, of an evil, beastly king, uh, you'd probably think, yeah, Nero sees them, he reads 666, uh, it all makes sense. Now, it's clearly symbolic for any human power that entices or allures us to make compromises away from Jesus. Uh, What we see here um, in this second beast is, is that we're being forced, not by threat, but by by what this beast does. Uh, Did you notice it there? What happens if you don't get the mark of the beast? You can't buy or sell. Uh, It's tied up with money. It's tied up with riches. It's tied up with comfort about living in this world. Now, Now, that seems to be one of the devil's oldest tricks, to seduce us with money, uh, with profits and comfort, with things Not the brash threats of the first beast, which slaughters and throws in prison, but the subtle attraction of wealth that can slowly but surely see us giving our allegiance, our time, our thoughts, our priorities, and our heads and our hands to wealth. That's the picture we get here from Revelation 12, 13. And it looks pretty bleak, doesn't it? We have a three-pronged attack, the devil and his beasts. Satan, frustrated by his ultimate defeat, is venting his fury on Christians through slaughter and defeat and through deceiving the world and seeking to take down as many as he can with him. But amidst all that horror, we do have much hope. Uh, And so next we see how to resist. How we can resist Satan's multi-pronged attack. Uh, And the first point is to choose the side. Choose a side. Uh, James 4 verse 7, James wrote, uh, the book titled his name, Uh, Submit yourselves then to God, resist the devil and he will flee from you. He is resistible. He seems powerful. He is furious. He does want to take out his vengeance on Christians, but he can be resisted. He's defeated, but he's still dangerous. And he's venting his rage, both in this violent destruction and deception. But both in James and here in Revelation, we're called to choose. Uh, that's what you see in James. Submit to God. Resist the devil. You've got to choose who you'll submit to, who you will uh, resist. See, right after chapter 13 in Revelation, uh, we actually have chapter 14. So chapter 13 ends with some with the mark of the beast. Uh, and chapter 14 begins, very next verse, um, with the alternative. 
the 144,000, they've already come up in Revelation. The 144,000 who are sealed, who are marked on their foreheads with God's mark. I'm pretty convinced that this 144,000 is the fullness of God's people. The 12 uh, tribes of Israel times the 12 apostles, Old and New Covenant times together, 144,000, all of God's people together. They haven't been compromised by being tainted by the beast and his mark. And so they are marked with God's seal written on their foreheads in direct contrast to those who are marked uh, with the seal of the beast. Now, we saw God's seal a few weeks ago throughout the New Testament consistently is the Holy Spirit. That's how God's people are sealed. Uh, These are the ones who are purchased by Jesus' blood. And they're pictured here as a contrast and an invitation for us to choose. Now, if you have not explicitly chosen to follow Jesus, if we've not chosen to submit to him and live for him, then we've chosen the other side. Satan doesn't care what we choose instead of Jesus. Uh, you, you might hear um, around that some of the biggest tricks the devil of well, one of the biggest tricks the devil ever played was to convince the world he doesn't exist, or to convince the world that oh, to follow Satan uh, you need to be a demon worshipper. Uh, but really, Satan's not interested, particularly in how you reject Jesus, only that you choose something other than Jesus to follow. It might be living, in, uh, living for something else instead of Jesus. And in the language of these chapters, that is worshipping the beast. Uh, anything that has stolen our allegiance from the one true king. Now, here in Australia at the moment, we're basically spared from the destruction of the first beast. But we do have this second beast raging against us, deceiving and alluring us, seeking to pull our allegiance away from Jesus towards something else. And the primary seduction does seem to be wealth or comfort. Um, Jesus said in Matthew 6, No one can serve two masters. You'll hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You can't serve both God and money. And we're invited here to to think, where is our allegiance? Is it wealth and security, uh, comfort or travel or power, or Jesus? Money or God? Jesus talks about money and stuff often as the thing which entangles, entices, seduces us and ultimately chokes out faith. Have another think. Think about uh, what are you choosing with your actions, with your time and priorities? How we spend our time, how we spend our money. What would that say we are choosing? What, what would that mark, what, whose mark would that put on us? We, we see it by looking at where we spend our time and money and thoughts. So, so think again, where are we investing? Who will we mark by and choose the king? Um, that, that's the first way to resist the devil is choose God, submit to God. Um, the, the next is to take hold of our freedom from accusation. Now, in the middle of chapter 12, Jesus' victory over Satan is described like this. Verse 10, I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah for the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before God day and night has been hurled down. Now, uh, what we know about the devil is that uh, he used to have the the place, the position as prosecutor in the heavenly courts. We know that from Old Testament books like Job and Zechariah where we see that Satan has a place before God. He's not holy, he's still evil, but he takes down by God's people by pointing to them and saying, they are sinful. Liam does not deserve your forgiveness, God. Look, here's your law. He's broken it. And and you don't have much better argument than that. He was a very successful prosecutor. But with the death of Jesus, his atoning death, which actually takes away sins and and cleanses us and gives us a clean, uh, clean slate, with the death of Jesus... Uh, Satan's been hurled down. He's got nothing to prosecute with anymore. He can't pin us on, everything, on anything. Uh, and the imagery here is that he's been, he's been hurled down. He has no place in the courtroom anymore because he's got no argument. Uh, but, but when he's hurled down, he doesn't have God's ear anymore for accusations against us. So he's hurled down to earth where we are and he whispers in our ear, you're not worthy. 
You don't deserve God's forgiveness. You're too bad. If you were really a Christian, you would have kicked this sin by now. Those sort of accusations have come from the devil. Uh, Those sort of lies come from the devil. And we can believe them. It can make us hold back and not trust Jesus, withdraw from the community. And and what we need to do is, is to take hold of the freedom from accusation that Jesus gives us here. Uh, One really helpful practice that I've found is actually to write down the doubt. Write it down. Uh, You can't overcome this sin. And then find a verse, one of God's promises, that gives me the truth. It might even be this verse. No, our accuser's been held down. He doesn't have anything on me if I'm covered in Jesus' blood. If I've been forgiven, I'm standing in Christ. Uh, That's the the second way we can resist uh, the devil. Uh, The third way is that we can win through our testimony. Uh, We see that in verse uh, 11. They triumphed over him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Now, now in this life, there are countless things that we can be doing, uh, that we can be investing in from uh, the environment to politics, health reform, moral reform. We can work for all these things in our society. But none of them are how we win as Christians. I hear a lot of Christians speak as if our goal was to get Australia back to a pre-1950s state. You know, the good old days where we had Christian morals, where the church was respected, uh, where, you know, people got married before, before they lived together. Oh, the good old days, and that's what we're heading for, and that's what we need to be seeking. But that is not how we win. That is not how the kingdom of God goes forward. That's not how the the army of the Lamb, Christians, go forward. Without the testimony, that's the testimony of Jesus, the good news of Jesus, the gospel. Without people becoming Christians, the church dies. If if no more Christians, if no, no people became Christians now, within 50, maybe 100 years, the church would be gone, it would be dead doesn't matter how much moral reform, it doesn't matter how much environmental reform or whatever it might be. Without the gospel, the church dies. So the gospel is how we win. So we resist the devil by gospeling, by sharing Jesus with those we know and love. And the final way I want to put, put to us to resist the devil is to, to play the long game, uh, to have a, a long view of the future. Uh, Charles Spurgeon was a British preacher uh, based in London, back in the uh, 18, what is he, 1834 to 1892. Uh, that, that was his life. Uh, we talk about him quite a bit. He, I still listen to his sermons. Uh, he, not, not him preaching. They didn't have MP3 players back then. But other people recording. Uh, his sermons have been reprinted and recorded and sent throughout the world. He's, he's very famous now. And, and he had a huge church in London. Uh, his sermons were printed by the newspapers. He was celebrated as a pillar of society. And that's the picture of Spurgeon we, we often have in our minds is this, oh, wow, what a powerful, amazing Christian leader who was so successful. That was what it was like in his early life. Uh, but as culture went on, uh, what happened was there was some, some reform in culture that was going away from Christian ideals. Even within the church, there was moving away from sticking to the faith. Uh, and Spurgeon... Uh, instead of being popular, argued against the compromises of the day. He spoke up about it. He still kept preaching the gospel. He urged the church not to compromise on, on faith. And sure enough, first the papers stopped printing his, printing his sermons. And soon, even other Christian leaders accused him of being on the wrong side of history. Quote, have you heard that one? Uh, thrown at Spurgeon. Uh, they thought, here's a quote, he was an egotistical dinosaur. His clarity about right and wrong was viewed as arrogance in the face of a changing world. And so Spurgeon was attacked. And in the end, he was eaten alive. Uh, Now, even though Spurgeon thought that the fight was killing him, he took the the long view. He he recognised that God's time uh, and that when many, many more generations will come and go if the return of Jesus didn't come first. So for Spurgeon, being faithful meant not compromised. It meant looking weak and weird in his society and being absolutely slandered and slaughtered uh, in the public public square. Uh, There's this this quote, and and he he wrote this 
uh, in, in an article called All Round Ministry, an, an encouragement to another Christian leader. <coughs> Big pun. He's, towards the end of his life, he says this, posterity, that means the future or the future generations. Posterity must be considered. I do not look so much as to what is to happen today. For these things relate to eternity. For my part, I am quite willing to be eaten of dogs for the next 50 years, but the more, but the more distant future self-vindicate me. I have dealt honestly before the living God, my brother, do the same. Uh, and, and that's what happened to him. Spurgeon ended his life not respected, uh, either by his culture or by the Christian community. He ended his life as a bit of an, an outcast, a pariah, uh, who was seen as outdated because he held on to the fundamentals of the faith. Uh, but he looked forward to a greater future. He had the long view. See, following Jesus will mean facing the wrath of the dragon and the beast in this life. It will mean missing out on some of the pleasures of this world, on acceptance and belonging, comfort and ease now. It will mean the loss of freedom and possibly even life. But we know how it ends. We know how it ends. We know who wins. Uh, brothers and sisters, this life is not all that there is. Don't think about just the next few years or even the next 50 years. Think about eternity. The 50 years of facing, facing the wrath of the devil and this world is nothing compared to the weight of eternal glory uh, for those who find hope and life in Jesus. And who faithfully live for him. Let's pray. Father God, we, we thank you that you, you have given us this revelation. That you've pulled back the curtains of reality and, and shown us uh, what's really going on. Uh, that behind the struggles of failing to read our Bibles or, or failing to pray. Behind the struggles of persecution and oppression in this world uh, is, is Satan. And his agents who, who seek to uh, either force us or lure us away from faithfulness to Jesus. We pray that, that you would keep that crisply in our mind. Uh, that you'd help us to see that that is what's going on. Uh, and that ultimately we have a marvellous future awaiting us. If only we would hold to the testimony of Jesus. If we would not shrink away from death. But cling to your son our saviour. And we want to pray that now in Jesus name. Amen. Woody. Um, so three and a half years literal, or is it just incomplete? Uh, yeah, so, there's a, so the question was, is the three and a half years literal, or is it more just sort of incomplete? Uh, I, I'm pretty confident that it's uh, symbolic, especially given that it's, it's given so many different ways, you know, a time, times and half a time, 1260 days, three and a half years, 42 months. Uh, they're all referring to the same period, and you think, well, why... Why not just tell us three and a half years each time if you wanted to show us? Um, the, the, other, the other thing that, that makes us think that it's probably not literal uh, is that it's referring back to this, well, it, it probably uh, is reminding the Jewish audience of the time of Antiochus Epiphanes. Um, so after the prophet Daniel, uh, there was this time uh, where uh, he's a Seleucid king came into Jerusalem and, and he unleashed fury on the Jews for exactly three and a half years. Uh, and and he, he slaughtered pigs in the temple. Uh, he killed the, the priests. It was, it was really horrendous. So in, in their sort of national memory, if you hear, hear a period of three and a half years, you're almost certainly remembering that period of great suffering and oppression. And then you look at the theme of the time that we're looking at in Revelation, this uh, three and a half, you know, that, and, and it's, it's suffering and oppression and trial... Uh, but then the other part of it is, of course, that it's, it's not the full seven. Uh, God's perfect number, the fullness. It is this, 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 um, uh, this period. Now, now the, way, the way I read Revelation, I, I think it's this time from uh, Jesus' ascension to his return, which is obviously more than three and a half years. Um, some, some people believe that it's a, a specific three and a half years immediately before Jesus returned or depending on their particular brand of end time theology how that looks but it, to me it seems that, you know, it's this period that's cut short of, of the devil's raging rather than a specific time yeah.
Alan, did you have you? The reference to Satan being hurled down. Mm. We've heard that before uh, in the Bible. Is, does that refer to before creation, or is it? Yeah. Is so, th- thanks, Alan. So, the, the question: Satan being hurled down. Uh, that that is. Uh, does it? What what does it mean? Where, where, where does it come from? Uh, some people see this as being a description of some. Uh, almost prehistory battle uh, before Genesis where uh, Satan led a bit of a rebellion in heaven and was kicked out. Um, I reckon in the flow of this chapter, that is pretty clearly not what it's talking about uh, because it, it, very, it, it gives us when the battle was taking place. It was around Jesus' birth, life and death. Um, so he was defeated, not by being chucked out of heaven before Genesis, but he was defeated by the blood of the Lamb. That was when the accuser was, was thrown down. Um, it, we have heard this phrase before in the Bible. It was actually in the, uh, in the Gospels. Uh, so when Jesus sent out his uh, disciples. So this is after Jesus' birth, after the birth of the woman. Jesus on the, on the earth. He hasn't died yet, uh, but he's, he's burst into history. God himself on the face of the earth. And, and we saw this unprecedented a flow of exorcisms, of demons being cast out of people. Uh, and Jesus sent out his disciples uh, and they went out preaching and they came out going, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. And they're blown away. The fact that they're blown away means that this isn't a normal state of affairs. So pre-Jesus, uh, you, know, you don't have much luck casting out demons, but now they do. They wouldn't have been blown away if, they, if, if there wasn't a change. Uh, and Jesus says... I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning. So we should be, that should be sort of coming up as we read this chapter in Revelation. Uh, I, I reckon that, that, that's sort of partially what we're, we're reading here. It's at, through Jesus' birth, life, death, resurrection, the Jesus event is when we saw that battle fought, a uh, pretty quick battle. Um, and ultimately the victory was just in a, in a heartbeat with, with Jesus' atoning death. But it seems that the, even the the first ripples of Satan's defeat was, was happening even before Jesus' death. Um, so Jesus told a, a little story to explain it. He said, uh, you can't go and rob a strong man's house unless you tie up the strong man first. And, and he was very clearly talking about uh, casting out demons. So he said, Satan's bound. He's, he's in a way already defeated. Uh, but that, that sort of final defeat or ultimate defeat came with the cross. That's the way I said. People will argue me. That's okay. I'm, I'm not too bothered about that. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, Clive. I heard a Christian uh, speaker talk about while travelling on an airline, yep. he saw his fellow passenger apparently praying. And uh, he said, uh, oh, I understand you're a Christian. And the guy said, uh, no, I'm not, actually. I'm, uh, I'm involved in the alcohol. Yep. And he said, for the breakdown in Christian marriages, would you like to comment on that? Yeah. Um, okay, so uh, we have a, a Christian talking to someone who was part of the occult, uh, who was pr- praying for the breakdown in Christian marriages. Uh, now, uh, that, that, in a way, our, our experiences, uh, in a way, they're a neither here nor there without God's word. So we've always got to come back to the Bible to test what we're hearing and experiencing. Um, I, I think when it comes to thinking about the devil and demons and, and evil forces, we generally fall drastically one side or the other. We either uh, fear them far too much uh, and are terrified by them, uh, and we forget that, no, Satan's defeated. He's not God. He's not all-powerful. He's not all-present. He's not God. He's, he. he it was an angel who's rebelled. So he's a powerful spiritual being, but he's got nothing on God. Um, so we, we shouldn't be that terrified on them. But on the other side, sometimes we, we go, we almost pretend as though there is no spiritual world and we can just, you know, waltz through life and expect it all to be uh, nice and rosy. But Ephesians shows us really clearly that's not the case, uh, that there are uh, spiritual forces against us. So, you know, who was this guy exactly praying to and why? You know, I don't know. I think... He had a pretty poor theology. Um, uh, uh, but when, when I look at you know, what the Bible says about 
what Satan wants to do. Yeah, he, he, he wants to attack all, all aspects of, of, of Christian faith and faithfulness. And marriage would be, would be part of that, I would, I would imagine. So, but I think we've got to be careful. You know, we, we'll hear stories not to build whole theologies on an account, uh, but rather start with the Bible and work out, work out from there. Thanks, Tom. Mouth. So the difference between determining the difference between guilt and being accused from Satan's abuse and how, how you got your tips on that. Okay, the, the difference between guilt and being accused. Um, so uh, I'll, I'll ask you a question back and I'll see if, see if I've got it. Uh, are you sort of nudging into the, where we are actually guilty because we're, we're, where we're sinners, but Satan's accusation doesn't have power, or what's the... Yes. Aha. Uh-huh. Okay. Thank you. Uh, so sometimes, again, two sides. Yeah, yeah. So what's the difference between good guilt, for a, one of a better word, that where where God actually wants us to feel guilty when we're sinning and repent and turn to Jesus? That's the only way uh, of being saved. You, you can't be forgiven without repenting, without uh, confessing your sins and turning away. And you generally need guilt to do that. And then bad guilt, uh, which is this accusations from the evil one. Uh, how do you work out the difference? Um, I, I, my top tip is, is, is the trajectory. Uh, so where does this guilt push you? Uh, so this voice in your head might be audible, might be not, this feeling uh, that says you shouldn't be doing that. that that's, that's not on. That, 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 that you're guilty before God. Is that pushing you towards Jesus, uh, towards repenting? Uh, towards wanting to be close to God and wanting to change and seeking God for help, I'd say that's from the Holy Spirit. That's good. Uh, so if it's pushing you to say, well, I want to be close to God, if it pushes you to prayer uh, and seeking to, to reform and, and seek Jesus and forgiveness, then that, that's good, Gil. If it's pushing you into depression uh, and, uh, and hopelessness, then that's, that's probably a good sign that it's, it's bad, guilt. Uh, one, one thing that I, I didn't get a chance to mention was the, the role of the Christian community in all this. Um, so often it's, or almost always, it's helpful to share some of that with some, a trusted Christian brother or sister. Uh, you know, find someone you trust who, who's godly and, and share what you're feeling. Uh, and they'll tell you, they'll, you know, then Satan's, you know, they're not in your head, so they're a little bit immune from that in a way. And often they can give perspective and say, no, yeah, you're right. You should be feeling guilty about that now. Cut it out. And, uh, and sometimes that's what we need to hear. And at other times they'll say, oh, you know, Jesus has forgiven you for that. You know, he's washed you clean. Now, yeah, we need to move on. But hey, uh, you're forgiven. And, and, and I think the, the Christian community, that's what God's given us to overcome some of those things. Does that help a little bit? Okay. Well, we'll pull it up there. Uh, Any other questions, ask Rob over dinner.